And I want to speak at this hour on the topic of Calvary. And I want you, as the young man just a moment ago said, I want you to see my words. I want you to see Calvary did a wonderful job, by the way. And beautiful prayer, song leading is just excellent. Oh, Paul loves to sing, don't he? And he'll write a song if you're not real careful. Was that seven times 70? That's one you'd written. That's good. That's good. But I want you to be able to visualize Calvary this morning. I want to put you at the foot of the cross. In Luke 4 and 13, it says that, And when he, the devil, had ended all his temptations, he departed from him for a season, King James, and more literally, for a more opportune time. Calvary will be the Lord's final temptation. And it will be his greatest. In the first temptation, Luke's account ends with this foreboding note that there's going to be a more opportune time. There's going to be a more convenient season down the road where he can make appeals for the devil or for the Lord's soul. So these words foreshadow a sequel to that great duel that the devil and Jesus had in the wilderness. But the second grab for the Lord's soul would have to be more strategically planned than the first. And Satan knows this. And the setting, it would have to be different too. Starker, more desolate, more hopeless. And the timing, it would have to be different too. It would have to be, as Luke suggests, a more opportune time. And the word that Luke uses in Luke 4.13 is kairu. And it's a word that's used elsewhere in Scripture of a time when fruit is hanging heavy on the branch. Matthew 13, 30, Matthew 21, 34, and some other places where this word is used for a harvest time, a time ripe for picking. So the time of Satan's first temptation was when Christ's ministry was just beginning to bloom. When everything looked hopeful, everything was out in front of him. And he knows that if he comes again, it'll have to be a time when the bloom was off the branch, when all hope is gone, and that time is now. The ministry is dead, and so almost is Jesus. He suffered the loss of sleep, the loss of blood, the loss of his friends. He's never been more tired than he is now. He's never been weaker. He's never been more alone than he is now. So Satan knows that now is that opportune time that he spoke of three years prior. He has watched from the corners of the upper room. He heard Jesus say to Judas, What thou doest, do quickly. He, he waited in the shadows of Gethsemane. He saw Jesus go into the heart of the garden and fall down on his face. And he prayed unto his Father that that cup could pass from him. He witnessed the betrayals and the trials, the mockings and the beatings. And he knows that the soul of the Son of God has never been more ripe for the picking, nor more within his reach. So he comes this one last time, rubbing his hands together, and he approaches the tree in the middle, 
reaching for the branch that is heavy with fruit, straining to grab it before it falls into the hands of his father. The setting for this final temptation is a chalky knoll just outside of Jerusalem's northern wall, scooped with shallow caverns. The rounded hill looks grim and ominous to its well-fitted name, Golgotha, the place of the skull. And if you stand in the city, the skull stares away from the city, and its stone gaze is unmoved by the vultures and the crows and the other winged scavengers that, that are still to cross its brow, pecking around for remains of the dead. I want you to see it, folks. Three vertical beams are staked to the top of that hill, standing tall and unshaded in the morning sun, just like soldiers after Reveille, standing at attention, tall and awaiting the day's assignment. And the assignment for today, two thieves and a religious zealot. Open your Bible with me to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. Verses 45 and 46. Notice what Jesus says, or the Bible says. Now from the sixth hour, that would have been high noon. The Jews began their day at 6 a.m. So in the sixth hour, this would have been 12 o'clock noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So from noon to 3 p.m., the sun didn't shine. And it was an enveloping gloom. And this would have been very unnerving to the Jews and to the superstitious Romans. And uh, it lasted until 3 o'clock. In Judaism, the evening oblation, the evening sacrifice, was sacrificed at 3 o'clock. So Jesus would have perhaps died at 3 o'clock that evening. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, notice the text, Jesus, Anna, Boao. Anna, Boao, Boao, shout, Anna, up. When Jesus was on the cross, he did not cry out. Jesus shouted up, and the verb tense that is used here suggests to us that he had kept his feelings and his emotions so pent up in him for so long that when he finally spoke, his voice exploded across the horizon of Golgotha. It was as if he pushed his head back against the timber and pressed his face into heaven, and he shouted up. He did not shout out. He shouted up so as to speak to his heavenly Father one-on-one. -on -one. Back in our text, it says that he shouted up, now notice, with a megas phone. Megas, mega, loud, phone, phone, voice. So when Jesus was on the cross and he shouted up this question into his father, it was as if he was shouting through the end of a megaphone and his voice literally exploded on the floor of heaven. And he was saying, notice that, saying, which is a present tense verb, by the way, which means it repeats. He said over and over and over this question, what is the question? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Repeat it, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. 
Now aren't you glad that the Holy Spirit has not left us in the dark relative to these Aramaic words? And being interpreted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, King James? And so, see, you were not the first one. And I was not the first one to ever ask why. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the word forsaken is an interesting word. It's ekkatalipo. Lipo, leave, cut it down, egg out. Ekkatalipo, to leave down and out. My God, my God, why have you left me down and out? And he said that repeatedly over and over. He cried out to his father, why have you left me down in this? And you know, if we search our hearts this morning, we know the answer to that question. Now all of that was on uh, Friday. I want us to back back up to Thursday night. Unless you and I, we are arm in arm, hand in hand, and we walk into this little building, this little house, and before us is a little staircase that leads up to an upper chamber. Arm in arm, you and I climb that little staircase. We get near the top and we hear voices. We see the candle lights flickering on the wall. And as we draw closer and we stick our head into that room, there are 13 men in that room. And we know the one who speaks. It's Jesus. And we hear him say, well, we hear all the disciples say, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? When he announced that one would betray him and Jesus said, it is he who dips his hand with me in the dish. And he looks at Judas and says, what thou doest, do quickly. Judas gets up, goes to the temple, and betrays the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Get it, folks. There was a provision in the law of Moses that forbade an adult male slave for being sold for less than 30 pieces of silver. Judas sold Jesus for bottom dollar. Now you and I, we follow the, Jesus and the 11 disciples out of that little room that walked down that same little staircase that we went up and uh, down the valley across the brook Kedron up in to the Garden of Gethsemane where is found the Mount, or up into the Mount of Olives where is found the Garden of Gethsemane. And we see Jesus plant eight of the disciples on the periphery of the garden. He takes Peter, James, and John deeper into the garden. And he tells them, watch and pray. Jesus goes on in a stone's throw. And he falls down on his face. And he begins to pray, Father, if it's at all possible, allow this cup to pass from me. But not as I will, your will be done. Jesus was suffering from a mild form of shock in the garden, knowing that his hour had come. He rose up and he went to where the disciples were. And they weren't praying. They were asleep. And he does that three times. And the third time he comes and he tells the disciples, take your sleep. You're going to need your rest for the events of this day. And now we see the, the uh, torches flicker in the darkness. We hear chains rattling. We hear the, the uh, footsteps of the foot soldiers. And they come up and Judas betrays the Lord with a kiss. 
And Peter pulls his sword and he cuts off Malchus's right ear. John 18, verse 10. Now, Jesus, Jesus tells Peter, Put up thy sword again into its sheath. The cup that my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? And Jesus reaches down into the dirt and picks that old bloody ear. It's got sand and dirt all over it now and slaps it off and sticks it back on the side of Malchus's head. Now, I don't know how much evidence it would have taken to convince you. But now, on that, I'm convinced that this is something that's really special that's happening here. And so Jesus wants Peter to understand there is a cup that I and I alone can drink. And the soldiers bind the hands of Jesus. John 18, verse number 12. You and I sing that song. He could have called 10,000 angels. Thank God he didn't. And they led Jesus away that night, taking him to the high priest, and then uh, to, uh, to Pilate, to Herod, and back to Pilate. Jesus went through a series of mock trials, kangaroo courts at night, before the Sanhedrin, to Pilate, to Herod, and back to Pilate, that had 20 or more irregularities in it. And Pilate said, I find no fault in him. What I'll do is I'll chastise him and I'll release him. Luke 23, 16 through 22. You see, Pilate thought that he could give the Jews some blood and the blood would satisfy them. Pilate then asked, What shall I do with Barabbas, a murderer? The mob yelled in chorus, Release him, release him, Luke 23, 18. Then Pilate asked, What then shall I do with Jesus? Luke 23, 21, Let him be crucified. So the order was given. He said, I'll give them some blood and surely they'll be satisfied. So the order was given. Jesus was to be scourged, John 19, verse 1. Now friends, scourging was no little thing. It was no light thing. Now, Jesus was not beaten by the Jews. You know, the Jews had 40 save 1, 39 stripes. Jesus was beaten by the Romans, and the Romans had no lash count. And so it was the job of the Romans to bring you within one blow of death. They had a man who ordered the next lash. They had a man to swing the lash. They had a man that checked the victim after every lash to see if he could stand one more lash and still live. And a lot of men didn't live. through. They died from being beaten by the Romans. So, And Jesus, too, would have been receiving probably his beating from a Syrian. The Syrians were subjugated to Rome at the same time the Jews were. And there have been a thousand years of hate between the Jews and the Syrians. And the Syrians were forced to do Rome's dirty work. The Jews were not. For a soldier that will not fight on Saturday would not be worth very much, would he? So the Jew goes in and he gets his government issue whip. And he steps into the prisoner's dock and, oh, his heart begins to palpitate. It's a Jew. I get to beat me another Jew. So Jesus would have been receiving a terrible beating. A thousand years of hate was cut out of the back of our Lord. Now man had to either be half drunk or half animal to do this. But it was a job. 
To beat the man, you would remove the clothing from the waist up. They would hoist the hands high and pull you up on your tiptoes to further stretch the skin. And a man would take that whip and he would begin to cut you with that whip. And the whip first leaving a welt and the welt filling up, the bruise filling up with fluid and then subsequent lashes would open that wound up. And so our Lord would have been a bloody mess. They beat him nigh unto death. And they cut him down. They put a purple robe upon his back. Now these beatings were so severe that history records for us that you could look at a man's rib cage and you could look at his back and you could see his vital organs inside his body cavity through the chunks of flesh that it would pull out. Jesus beaten near to death. They plait a crown of thorns and they press him upon his brow. Now... I'm told that the thorns in that region emit a poison. It's like a bee sting. And there's no record, nowhere in the record, where those thorns, once they were placed there, that they ever came off. And so this beating and, and the subsequent treatment would have been very severe. They put a purple robe upon his back. And when the blood had become coagulant, they then jerked the robe off to further intensify the pain. They put a blindfold upon him. And they began to dance around him and smite him and mock him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, who is it that hit thee? And they plaited that crown of thorns and pressed it down into his brow. And you can almost feel the stings yourself. Then Pilate said, I find no fault in the man. What shall I do with Barabbas? Release him. Release him. What then shall I do with Jesus? Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate's wife in Matthew 27, 19, she'd had a bad dream about Jesus and she tells Pilate, I've suffered many things in a dream because of this man. Have thou nothing to do with this just person? And to the superstitious Romans, that would have been very unnerving. But Pilate was a politician. He was a puppet ruler, like what a governor may be, in reference to what the President of the United States is. The king was over all of the province. But Pilate was a little governor ruler under the Herod. And so um, uh, he, he had to act. Because Jesus said he was a king. And so the Jews said, we're going to go to Herod and we're going to tell Herod, you're allowing another king to live in your province. And so Pilate then thought Jesus was a rival to the Roman throne and he had to act. And so he washed his hands, but not his heart. Matthew 27, 24. And so to satisfy the mob, Jesus was delivered by Pilate to be crucified. He had suffered from a mild form of shock in the garden. He had been through intensive interrogation all night. He had undergone a severe scourging. He had been mocked, slapped, spit upon in high court, and now he's bearing his cross to Calvary. Crucifixion was a horrible practice. The Romans knew how to put you on the cross to where you could live for a long time. History records for us one man lived nine days. 
Well, evidently, they didn't get him on there just right. The Romans borrowed it from the Persians, and they perfected it. And the, the, the victim was made to carry his own cross, his own timber. And uh, Jesus stumbled over those cobblestone streets. And one of the times he stumbled, he didn't get up. He was yelled at. He was kicked. He, he was spit upon, but still he didn't get up. And a man by the name of Simon from Serene. Serene is in the northern tip of Africa. Simon would have perhaps been a black man summoned to carry the cross for our Lord. If Simon made it to heaven, when I get there, one of the first things I want to do is look Simon up and hug his neck and thank him for the compassion he had on my Lord that day. Now they reach Golgotha. The prisoners, their heart is about to jump out of their chest. And they're panting like a dog chasing a rabbit. The prisoners are exhausted. They're slick with sweat, fresh blood oozing from their wounds. And they grab Jesus and they throw him down, his back beaten to a bloody pulp. A man jumps on his chest, gets his arm, and puts it in position. And Jesus does not resist. A man sets the spike. And a man who swings a hammer, he does not miss, for he has done this many times before. Can you hear that hammer ringing on that cold steel spike? The man grabs the other arm, pushes it into place. Jesus does not resist. And now the spike is set and the man swings the hammer. The man that's been sitting on his chest jumps up, spins around, and they would drag the knees, put bow in the knees. They would drag them up. And I'll tell you why that is in a little bit. And he would turn the, knee, the feet, ankles to one side and drive a single spike through both feet. So the man sets the spike. Jesus does not resist. Now they raise him up and suspend him between heaven and earth, the Son of God, the Son of the living God. And it's here. The devil makes three grabs for the soul of the Son of God. This is that more opportune time. You see, when Jesus' ministry was just beginning and it was in full bloom, Everything was going good for Jesus and his life, and the devil couldn't get him. Now, now things are not going so good for the Lord. I'll get him now. And he's more cunning this time around. Instead of coming out in the open, he voices his temptations through the traffic of onlookers that are standing around the cross. They're his mouthpiece sounding almost as an echo from those wind-swept hills in the wilderness three or three and a half years ago. And the devil delights in seeing Jesus suffer, but he fears what that suffering could accomplish. Grab number one for the soul of the Son of God. The first temptation comes through the religious leaders. 
feeling the nearness of their victory. I mean, they had Jesus right where they wanted Him. No man ever got down from the cross. Death is imminent, and we're going to stand here and dance and giggle and laugh with glee until He takes His last breath. Feeling the nearness of their victory, they pack around the cross like jackals cornering a crippled gazelle. Their sneering lips show their savage teeth. Their biting remarks show their savage or their thirst for blood. And here's what they said. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God. Now Jesus could do that. He could have come down from the cross. He could have saved himself. And he could have shown the religious establishment that he truly is the Messiah, the chosen one, the promised seed of Eve through whom the the curse of Eden would be reversed. The promised seed of Abraham through whom the entire earth would be blessed. The promised heir of David's throne through whom the kingdom of God would finally come. So many promises converge at the cross and maybe, just maybe, there's a chance at even this late hour that he could be thwarted if only, if only Jesus would save himself. But their sneers are met only with silence, and soon the rulers lose their taste and thirst for blood and leave. The second grab for Jesus' soul comes through the soldiers. They pull up a wine-soaked sponge to his mouth, but Jesus turns his head. Then one of the gutter-mouthed men curses Jesus and mocks him with a second temptation. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Jesus opens his swollen eyes and he sees the blur of men below. What stories they could tell, what eyewitnesses they would be, and if to their superiors if he really did come down from the cross and save himself. What evangelists they would make. What revival would break out in Rome. How Christianity would flourish under government protection. How legislation would change under Christian influence. It would be an unparalleled opportunity if only Jesus would save himself. Ladies and gentlemen, he doesn't save himself. He doesn't even save his dignity. He makes no defense. He makes no reply. And seeing little sport in his silence, the soldiers move on to the next station and Satan returns to his. Grab number three came through one of the thieves. Since the devil couldn't get Jesus through the religious leaders, and he couldn't get Jesus through the soldiers, he would appeal to his compassion. Since Christ knew what pain this man was going through, for Jesus was going through it also. Maybe the dying man's suffering would soften Jesus. And so the thief said, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Luke 23, 39. 
Slowly, Jesus turns his head to see the man who had just insulted him. He sees eyes that are lit with anger, anger at life for bringing him there, anger at Rome for nailing him there, and anger at Jesus for leaving him there. How simple it would be for Jesus to ease the burn in the soul that inflames this man's eyes. Jesus had done it many times before with a Gerizine demoniac and the fire that he extinguished when he expelled the demons from the desert of that man's soul. And what about the woman at Jacob's, Jacob's well? near Sychar and Samaria and how the living water that he offered her quenched the desperate thirst in her soul and he can stop the fire in this man's soul too and the fever in his wounds and in the man next to him. If only Jesus would save himself and us. Now Jesus knows that he can save himself or he can save us But he cannot do both. Had he come down from that cross and saved himself, he could not have saved us. So in spite of how much pain he was in, in spite of how tired he was, in spite of how weak and how alone, he had the strength, brethren, to choose us. It was the struggle in the wilderness that prepared Jesus for the sufferings of the cross giving Him the strength to not give in, the courage to not come down, and the selflessness to save us, to choose us, and not Himself. And we sing, if that isn't love, there's no stars in the sky, the sparrow can't fly. If that isn't love, heaven's a myth. And there's no feeling like this, if that isn't love. But now I want us to turn our attention to the cross. I want you to see it, folks. What do we see? First, we pause to read the gypsum plaque nailed above the head of our Lord, King of the Jews. What does it mean? He's hung beneath this indictment since uh, nine this morning, and but now his legs are cramping. His back is throbbing. His arms are numb. He can no longer feel them. And the tendons are torn loose from the sockets in his shoulders. But these are the dregs of the cup given him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he must drink them down to the last bitter mouthful. His fever has worsened. His eyes are swollen shut. His throat is parched. His tongue thick and pasted down. And while we ponder all of this, the ground begins to shake beneath our feet and soldiers are thrown staggering to the ground. People are running for their lives. They're praying and screaming and they're falling down. Crosses are swaying in their stone sockets. Nails are tearing flesh. Screams are knifing the air. Boulders are tumbling, crashing. Stones sealing the tombs of the dead are shaken open. And we look back up at Jesus as a splash of sunlight breaks through the darkness as the hill begins to settle from its shaking. His arms are raised. His head is bowed. His arms reaching skyward at diagonals. A single spike through each hand or perhaps each wrist. Lines of blood veining down his arm from the wounds in his wrist to his chest and falling to the ground. There's a face that's 
mottled with fisted abuse, a rib cage torn and welted from the scourging, knees turned to one side, a single spike through both feet. Do you see it, folks? And they come to break the legs of the condemned. But they break not the legs of our Lord that it might be fulfilled that not a bone of his body would be broken. John 19, 36. But why do you want to break their legs? Remember I, I mentioned that they would put a bow in your knees or in your legs and nail your, pull their legs up and nail them? It's because while you hang on the cross, your pectoral muscles spasm and you can't breathe. You can't get air in, you can't get air out. So what they would do they push up on that bottom spike, relieve the pressure, get some air into their lungs till they couldn't take that any longer, and they'd sag back down till they couldn't take that any longer, and they'd push back up on that spike so that they could breathe. So why do you want to break their legs? A man with broken legs can't push up on the bottom spike, and death will come by suffocation. Heaven holds all to me. Brighter its glory shall be. Earth holds no treasure, but perish with using. Heaven holds all to me. Sing to me of heaven. Let me fondly dream of its golden glory, of its pearly gleam. We sing those songs because of Jesus. My name is in the book of life. Oh, bless the name of Jesus. I rise above all doubt and strife and read my title clear. My name is there. It's there, and it's there because of Jesus. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. My sins, my sins, my Savior, how sad on thee they fall. Seen through thy gentle patience, I tenfold feel them all. I know they are forgiven, but still their pain to me is all the grief and anguish they laid my Lord on thee. My God, my God, why hast thou left me down and out? We know the answer to the question, do we not? My God, my God, why have you left me down in this? I am ashamed to tell you. I'm ashamed to tell you that I am the reason why. You are too. The key to heaven was hung on a nail. Don't ever forget it. A little lad born amidst the stench of the stable, wrapped in rags and laid in an animal's feeding trough, a young boy at the age of 12 astounding the teachers of the law who grew to be a man, nailed to a tree, and astounded the world. Let us stand amazed in the presence of that Savior. It was this Savior who said, Except you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sin. It was this same Jesus who bled and died for us on the cross that said, I tell you nay, that except you repent, you'll likewise perish. It was this same Jesus who said, we must make confession by mouth. It's the same Jesus who said, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. 
and you're not saved until you're saved His way. You can't do it on your own. There's no such thing as bootstrap religion and bootstrap salvation. You're going to heaven His way or you're not going. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14 and 6. Could be that you have sin charged to you. Maybe you were once enlightened, you accompanied with the saints, but now you've allowed the world back down into your bloodstream and that sin has separated you from God, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Would you not repent and pray right now as together we stand and sing?